We uh, partner with both APS and other entities such as licensing and the investment program to ensure uh, a continuity of health, a holistic approach when delivering services to these individuals. Welcome to the podcast, Pathways to Safety, Bridges from Adult Protective Services to Community-Based Service for Adults Experiencing Abuse, Neglect, and Exploitation. We come to you with the goal of introducing community partners in Montana who work together to assist victims and survivors of adult experiencing abuse, neglect, and exploitation. My name is Marianne Liu. I am your host today to meeting one of these community partners in Montana. Before we start the episode, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is supported by the Administration for Community Living, the United States Department of Health and Human Services through a 2021 Elder Justice Innovation Grant, with Montana Adult Protective Services being our primary community partner. Grantees carrying out projects under government sponsorship are encouraged to express freely their findings and conclusions. Nonetheless, our findings, conclusions, point of views, or opinions do not necessarily represent the official policy of the federal government. Now, let's join our guest in the conversation. Hello, Michael. Well, could you please tell us a little bit about who you are, your professional position, and your role with your agency? Oh, I'm Michael Woods. I'm the Quality Assurance Program Manager with the Big Sky Waiver Program. I oversee a lot of the quality assurance coordination, whether it's the performance measures of our waiver application or uh, quality assurance reviews, policy clarification, and as well as kind of corrective action plans when it comes to providers that are housed within our Big Sky Waiver program. Fantastic. Could you tell us a little bit about what does your agency do and explain a little bit about what waiver programs are and the client that you serve? Yep. We have a 1915C waiver approved for individuals that are elderly, so over 65, and people with disabilities that meet the level of care criteria as approved in our waiver application. We deliver services above and beyond what's delivered in state plan Medicaid. So that could include things such as home modifications, vehicle modifications, personal care assistance, specialized medical supplies and equipment. It's a very person-centered program centered on helping keep individuals out of the nursing home and living independently in their community as much as possible. That sounds very exciting. So could you tell us a little bit more about under what circumstances does your agency or do you serve older and dependent adults who experience abuse, neglect, and exploitation? We uh, serve both elderly individuals and individuals with nursing-level um, care of disabilities and oftentimes these populations are vulnerable to abuse neglect and exploitation we uh, partner with both APS and other entities such as licensing and the investment program to ensure uh, a continuity of health a holistic approach when delivering services to these individuals and to ensure that if there is abuse neglect or exploitation identified that we have a means of tracking and trending those events and providing corrective action items to prevent it from happening again. I see. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you work with all these different partners, maybe starting with Adult Protective Services? 
Yeah, absolutely. So in Montana, our senior long-term care um, bureau houses multiple programs, which includes the waiver program, the community first choice program, which is the state plan, a personal assistance program, and as well as our um, adult protective services. So we're all pretty much partners in one bureau working hand in hand to deliver services to the members on our program. And at the moment we have developed a desk level procedure as a partnership between adult protective services and a senior long-term care services. And so right now, when an individual is identified as being subject to abuse, neglect, or exploitation, whether the allegations come from the individual themselves or a service partner, such as a provider working with them or someone from the community, the APS worker gets that referral, drafts a letter of intent to investigate. It will then send that letter of intent to investigate to me, which I identify which program that an individual is on, or if they're on one of those programs. And then we'll follow up with the corresponding program lead, to let them know that that intent to investigate is active, which then we need to contact the providers to create a series occurrence report, which will help track and trend those APS investigations. Really, you know, what's the source of the investigation? where it's coming from, and then it helps lead to drafting corrective action items that might help prevent that from occurring again. And then once that investigation is completed by APS, they send me a letter of completion identifying whether it was substantiated abuse, neglect, or exploitation, or if it was not indicated, or if there wasn't enough evidence to verify one way or another. Interesting. What about the other partners? You also mentioned licensing and also ombudsman. Yes. So usually it's kind of a gunshot approach depending on what the circumstances. So each state staff in their job description, you know, we are identified as mandatory reporters and we receive training on what does abuse, neglect, and exploitation look like, whether it's red flags or actual abuse, neglect, or exploitation. And then, you know, so sometimes, depending on the circumstance, it might need to be submitted to Medicaid fraud, or it could be a licensing if it's a adult residential assisted living facility, or even sometimes nursing facilities, which most of our individuals can't be receiving home and community-based services while in a nursing home. So usually they're on a break in services during that, which doesn't really stop us from making the appropriate referrals. So if it's facility-based, then I would go to licensing. If it's an instance of Medicaid fraud, that's when we submit a Medicaid fraud referral. And then if it's regarding abuse, neglect, or exploitation, then I go to APS, which they may all follow up with the same resources and kind of provide that holistic approach to resolving the issues. Wow. It sounds like a very complex, you know, division of work and collaboration. Do you have any success stories that you might be able to share with us? Yeah, there's been quite a few, um, you know, resolutions. It's kind of really hard to narrow down. I guess as far as successes, it's kind of a hard subject to deal with. But the first one I would say is that there's been multiple facilities that have been identified as high-risk facilities, you know, either just blatant neglect, abuse, or exploitation, all the above, where the members were at high risk living at that facility. 
at the facility, then had to report it to licensure. And then we had to work with APS and our bureau all together as a teamwork to transition to those members into a safer environment, whether it was in the community with in-home care or another facility throughout the state, and had to kind of work all together to make a seamless transition to keep the members' health and safety intact while that transition occurred, in which some cases, some of those members had to be transitioned to a completely different city or different part of the state. And then in other cases, we've had issues of self-neglect due to drug and alcohol abuse, and you know, had been able to get those members admitted to an inpatient facility that takes Medicaid and help them establish a healthier baseline in life, give them the resources needed to succeed in the community. We learned from Adult Protective Services that there are quite a few repeat clients that they now see you know, coming back to their programs, being reported back to APS. Does your program also observe some of these repeat clients, you know, getting reported to Adult Protective Services as well. What are some of the challenges that your agency experienced in serving these clients? Unfortunately, yeah, we do see quite a few repeat offenders. And that is kind of, I think, really due to a lack of resources in the community, whether it's access to consistent services like caregivers, due to the hiring shortages, or it could just be a lack of family supports and uh, healthy uh, supports. Some of those supports may actually be, in fact, unhealthy, or they just keep going back to those same resources, such as family or friends that are bringing them back into the drug or alcohol usage, and that's kind of what their lifestyle has been dependent on. And so it just, it's hard to get, you know, consistent resources to curb those addictions or self-neglect issues. And then at the same time, battling the hiring shortages to really have healthy services in the home. And that kind of, you know, bouncing from place to place, which sometimes, you know, those issues can lead to housing issues such as evictions from assisted living facilities or accessible apartments, stuff like that. And they're already in short supply as it is that sometimes when you burn those bridges, it's so hard to get back on track to the right area. Mm. Well, do you see anything, you know, kind of in addition to what's been done that the service providers might be able to help, or do you see any kind of additional resources that might be needed for these clients? Well, I think a lot of times it's, you know, I think a resource that is really needed and is probably the most valuable is accessible housing, that being low-income accessible housing and access to mental health services to, and that might even include case management, mental health services where the individual can be continuously receiving mental health services while overcoming some of the social barriers that impede an individual with a disability in the community. That could be access to transportation, access to affordable, accessible housing, and in Montana, we're such a large rural state that it's hard that except both of those, the accessible housing and accessible transportation. And it might be you know, achievable in one area, but in another, it's not feasible to have that in that small community. Mm. You touched upon a little bit about the barriers in serving members and clients in rural areas. Are there any advances in 
some of the new practices or ideas that you think hold a lot of promise in addressing those barriers? So right now, we have a couple of different programs going on. We have what's called the Money Follows the Person. The coordinator has an approved demonstration grant to look at practices, and we're attempting to hire some data analysts to retrieve the data and look at it, as well as develop programs that might be long-standing with the Money Follows the Person program. And they're looking at hiring, if they didn't already hire a housing coordinator to really identify individuals high risk of going back into nursing home or having issues getting out of a nursing home because of housing issues in itself. And there's a housing coordination group that takes place, say, monthly to really look at barriers to housing, which I'm hoping we'll, you know, we can brainstorm and work on identifying some of those barriers and bring it to the forefront of any projects. The last question that I have is that for adults experiencing abuse, neglect, and exploitation, sometimes it might be a little bit hard for them to think beyond, you know, safety and survival and all those stuff. So are there some strategies that your staff employ to help your members, especially those experiencing abuse, neglect, and exploitation, to set goals on, you know, above and beyond just survival, but also, you know, like jobs, hobbies, or personal growth? Yeah, you know, we really discuss, like I said, that holistic approach, which often includes ruling out third-party liability, which is a federal requirement. And a lot of that, you know, includes programs such as vocational rehabilitation. And it may include seeking peer mentoring or assistance through an independent living center. A lot of my employment experience was originally through the independent living centers of Montana, so I have a lot of experience on navigating the different programs and social barriers to achieving self-sufficiency. And so a lot of times we try to tie in those partners into the service plan. So if a member is looking at employment, you know, what are the barriers, what are their resources available, and what are their skills and assets they have to offer. So a lot of those goals can be included, you know, benefits counseling with a CWIC counselor, which is community work incentive coordinator. It could be working with a book rehab counselor. It could be, you know, job shadowing, you know, stuff like that, that we're trying to really push above and beyond just the minimum of services and equipment and supplies. But really, how are you going to use those services, equipment and supplies to live your life out in the community, you know, fully integrated into the community with your disability? As far as the individuals that are really identified as actively involved with abuse, neglect, or exploitation are at higher risk than others. It's, you know, sometimes it's really that either mental health resources you try to access to help them out. But, you know, I think our cornerstone of our program is informed consent. It's that we get the information to the person as long as they have the capacity to understand that information. And then it's the choice by the person. That's really what person center planning is about. And that's what our documentation really entails is that we are providing the information to the person. That person makes their choice. All adults with the capacity have the right to make bad decisions, whether it's about health money or relationships. But it's our due diligence to provide the risks associated with some of those behaviors. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for being 
on this particular episode today. It's great to learn about your work and also Big Sky Waiver's work. And we hope that, you know, we'll get to learn more about some of the success stories down the road. Sounds great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it useful. This podcast was produced by Studio K Productions. Our podcast logo was designed by Meng Yuwen. We welcome your feedback. Please visit elderjustice.acl.gov to leave a comment at the bottom of the web page's Contact Us section.